0: Wonka is carefully calibrated to bring joy. We want our joy to be something capable of being manipulated with buttons and knobs, with grand but somehow flat-looking sets. Bah humbug, that's Stephanie Zakarika, Time Magazine, poo-pooing our featured movie this week. That would be Wonka from director Paul King and, of course, the writer of doll starring Timothee Chalamet, who I think every girl under the age of 21 has a serious crush on with his uh, foppish hair. Uh, as far as our old movie is concerned, 20th anniversary of Sideways. That's right. The Paul Giamatti love fest continues with arguably his greatest film and his greatest performance. We'll dive into that. And as far as our wildcard this week, Nicole Noonan, who is the director of a film called "The Disappearance of Share Height"? It has one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. How rare is that to get a movie that is universally beloved right now? And um, again, my friend uh, Eric Nays, who is a phenomenal researcher with MLB Network, he says he has a friend named Eleanor West, who's a producer of the film. He's there trying to get the word out. I said, "Okay, sure, happy to have uh, Eleanor." Was going to come on, but she was busy, so Nicole came in instead. And thrilling. And in case you're thinking to yourself, disappearance of Share Height, what's it about? Well, how about this first sentence? Share Height's 1976 best-selling book, The Height Report, liberated the female orgasm by revealing the most private experiences of thousands of anonymous survey respondents. That's Mm. right. Me and Nicole talking all about Share Height, talking dirty here on this episode of Cinephile. coming up. Um, That's our old, that's our new, that's our wild card. As always, we appreciate the support of the podcast. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate and. Before we dive into the movies, a quick story here. Cody loves stand-up as do I and our friend Scott Spinelli who Cody says sounds like Bob Costas. He and I went to the cellar, which is a popular place to go in New York City. Best deal I'm like 30 bucks. You go uh, have a couple ginger ales and listen to some great stand-up. Now you don't know the, the lineup until the day of and Scott knows all these stand-ups as I'm sure Chris would as well. I don't know anybody. And then he says to me, all right, we got this guy, this guy, my guy, like, sure. While we're there. He says, We got Dan Soder. I'm like, okay. He goes, I'm like, he goes, he goes, that's Katie Nolan's boyfriend. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, look, like, okay, cool. Yeah, no, of course, I know Katie. You spin connects, et cetera. So, um, one woman we've seen before, she wasn't great. She's was all right. One guy we seen, yeah, wasn't great. But Colin Quinn, I, go, I know Colin Quinn, SNL. Great. Really funny. Great. As Scott said to me, he's a great writer. I'm like, yeah. He had a couple of bits, absolutely fantastic. Homelessness, riding the subway, uh, millennials. He was it was awesome. Colin Quinn was very, very funny. But Soder's the last guy up. So I go, he's the closer. Six stand ups. Awesome. Brought the house down. Guy was hysterical. Like, oh, my God. I, go, I did not know how funny he was. And he does great voices. Outstanding voices. He's yes. His, like he's, he's really good with the. And I like good voices. I like my Rich Little, Will Arnett, you name it. So his voices are excellent as a part of his bit. He talked about his parents' divorce when he was five, you know, deadbeat father, all these things. Excellent. So afterwards, he's like, you know, let me say hello kind of thing. And, and the guy who was the lead, like the host... It wasn't particularly good, but he had one great line in which he said he looks like Richard Dreyfuss's kid. So he was standing there having a the smoke, hitting on one of the girls. By the way, this girl was very pretty. She was like, you know, right front stage, and she's like laughing, like. Really excessively laughing at all of his jokes, so he kind of made a point where he's like, "Hey, we're going to hang out after this. Like, do I'm going to get your number." And sure enough, they're right outside. She's having a smoke. He's having a smoke. He's chatting her up. So I didn't want—I didn't want to cut his grass. I just say, "Hey, man, love the Richard Dreyfuss line." He's like, "Oh, thanks so much." I just watched, "What about Bob again?" I go, "Yeah, great movie, Bill Murray." I mean, what about Bob? Baby Steps. The oh, Hey, well, nice meeting you. Good luck with the uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then uh Soder's walking away. Now most people at this point would just let it go, but Spinelli said to me, "I have no shame," and I know he wanted to meet him. So I go, "Hey, Dan," and he kind of just turns my like, yeah. I run over. Hey, I introduced myself. I worked at the Katie DSP. Okay, yeah, yeah. I do some stuff with Love Attorney. He's like, Oh, yeah, we just did Pablo show. I'm like, yeah, great. And I always just want to say hello. He's like, Yeah, this is my friend Scott. Like, yeah. And then he goes, sorry, give me your phone name again. And I, I said, Adnan I Burke I said, you know, what? just take a picture. When you go home, just show Katie. Hey, I met this guy. And she like, Oh, yeah, I yeah. know he is. That's it. So we take the and Scott because let me get in the picture. I'm like, yeah, we take the picture. And then Spinelli says, Oh man, I, I just took a picture with your phone. And Dan just kind of like laughs, whatever. Maybe another minute of Kibbit I, I praise him on a couple of jokes specifically. He told me another joke he normally does, which is good. We and he walks away. And and Smiley's like, I I can't play Didn't get the picture. I'm like, Yeah, I, th- I thought when you said I can't play I took a picture of yeah. your phone, you would then say, Let me get a picture with my phone and when we're done. I said, I'd like to get the picture. So I said, Well, let me text Cody. So I text Chris mm-hmm. and you respond, I don't have Katie's number. I DM her here and there. Obviously we know each other, but I don't know yeah. the number. And I said, Okay, because well, maybe the next day you could you could maybe on Instagram you could follow him. And I go, Well, he's really funny. I, I would like to see more of his material. So I follow him. It was maybe the next day message him for the picture and I just I woke up the next morning and I go, this is going to be way too odd if I ask him for that picture. (laughs) Like, I said to myself, it it might have already been odd. I don't think it was odd that I said hello to him. No. Uh, I think the picture is probably okay too, because he's going to forget my name. He's like, well, just show Katie the picture. But then immediately, if I'm him, Katie, I I ran into an old colleague of yours and I'm deleting the picture. There's no way he's keeping the picture. Okay. That was my thought.
1: I think he might. I, I'm I'm, I'm, not a big picture deleter. Maybe some, maybe some people like go at the end of every day. Yeah. All right. I got to go through and delete all my bad pictures. Like, I just have a lot of nonsense in my phone. So okay. I'm I'm guessing he didn't delete the photo. And I don't think it's that strange. It wouldn't be that odd if I said,
0: hey, Dan, good to meet you last night. Hey, my buddy's really a big fan of yours. He'd love to get that picture. Do you mind sending it to me?
1: I would think less detail there and just be like, hey, man, that was great. Great meeting you. You got that picture we took. I'd love to have like as if almost like I feel like it's almost less creepy. You wanting it. Than being like my friends really hounded me for this picture oh, like man. i don't know you know what i mean like just kind of like <laughs> hey wait it was nice meeting you and we took a good picture that's, i'd love to have that could you could you send it to me like that's less weird than hey my friend is super nervous that he's not going to get this photo but uh i think i've met dan a few times he came to Highline and watched yes. him and katie came to Highline once so he's super cool and down to earth so i, I think yeah. he would be totally And and it's not like you're a weirdo who like you actually do know Katie.
0: To your point, little that night I checked, he's now following me on Instagram. So even if he doesn't know me, he gave me the courtesy follow back. So I Oh
1: my God, if you get the follow back, you could for sure ask for the photo. But I might just leave out that Spinelli is like super excited about it. And Spinelli
0: sounds like Bob Costas and is a big fan of yours. And he just
1: he would like the picture as well. Don't yeah, mention that yeah. part. So, okay, no, that it just just makes it seem a little more like you're super excited. Whereas you asking for it is just a casual, "Hey, great meeting you." Yeah. By the way, I'd, l- I'd love to have that photo.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're right. There's nothing yeah. strange about that. If I took a picture with a guy, who knows? Yeah. Um, maybe I'll DM him. I probably want this, but you're right. Now it's been a week, so I'm not going to bother. But but it's yeah. good to know in future what actually should have been done. Because then I and then I thought if I really wanted to get Katie's number. I could just ask somebody else. And I said, no, now, now I'm going to way too many lengths. I, to your point, yeah. I could have just DM her as well. It's like we we follow each other, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. We move on. Um, We have great guests coming up. In some ways, I'm not a big deal. In some ways, I am. And the way that I'm not a big deal, people all seem to think, oh, you're getting Giamatti. I'm not getting Giamatti. To be clear, in case you've missed it, he's awesome. And when I met him, he was a great guy, just like Dan Soder. <laughs> Dan Soder didn't know who I was. It was great. Giamatti was awesome. But the way you book these interviews is, is all through the guests. I already knew Giamatti's publicists who they were. I had emailed them before the Critics' Choice Awards. I met Paul Giamatti. We had a wonderful experience. You could not have been more gracious with his time. I've since emailed his publicist, deafening silence. So we're not getting Giamatti in the pot Like if, if I was a big deal, if I was some of the other places he's done, Mark Marin, Vanity Fair, Hollywood Reporter, Josh horwitz Happy Set Confused, we'd be getting Giamatti. So I'm not that big a deal.
1: So, so what you're saying is he didn't text his assistant that night and say, hey, I met this guy Adnan advert You like put him on my yes. Like if if he comes through and if there's an email from him, I'm like you don't think he, so. He didn't do that. Is no, what you're
0: no, he didn't. I think he won his Critics Choice Award. He went to in and out again. He had a great night. He was like whatever. Like if if he ever sees me again and I bring it up, we're gonna have a wonderful conversation. But he's not running to his publicist going, yeah, you know, what? I I would love to talk further with that guy. He was awesome.
1: You have an iPhone, correct? I do. I think the next time you got to just open up that voice memo. And do three minutes with him on the spot. Well, I, you just, know, to
0: that point, it's funny you said that because I said, listen, I think he's the kind of guy. If I just said right now, can I interview? You, he would. If it, it was, we were just standing there for, like you said, for five minutes, can I get you on the record? Like, sure, go ahead, record it. But yeah. to actually set it up to the publicist, that's not happening. And he's not gonna that's, give me his personal cell, obviously, either. That's, that's very weird, too.
1: I mean, it's pretty, iPhone voiced memos are pretty solid audio. Like, if you're ever somewhere, and you meet someone like if you record it on a voice memo, we can use it on the pod. Like okay. that is something you have a microphone in your pocket at any time. If you ever run into a select, I should have told you this before you went to the to this award show. Yeah, you could. have. But also, I don't know, during the award show, it might be bad form to like be asking yeah. people. And,
0: and I think first time meeting you may not have done it. But if I see him again and I go, listen, I met you, Barney's version member. Like, yeah, yeah, I emailed your publicist, they said, no, not a big deal. They even got back to me. Can we just do this right now? Do you have three minutes? You're like, uh, yeah, go ahead. sure, yeah. record. That's, that's all I need. Oh. I, I'll, I, I'll take 10 seconds. This is Paul yeah. Giamatti, and you're listening to Cinephile. Can you
1: do that for me? But can, yeah, like, exactly. I'll take that. Five seconds would be awesome. We'll start that. We'll start every episode with that. That'll <laughs> go before the imaging. Hello, this is Paul Giamatti, and you're listening to Cinephile. I think
0: he would do that. I would do that for someone. No problem. Whatever you need. Yeah. Uh, but here's why I am a big deal. The new Bob Marley biopic, One Love, is opening in theaters on Valentine's Day. And Walter, my man, hooking me up from Paramount. Because they really want me to see the movie, and I really want to see the movie. I really want to talk to Kingsley Ben-Adeer, is playing Bob Marley. So they booked up the theater for me. It was amazing. I went to my local theater, AMC Paramus, Friday morning, 10 a.m. I walk in. Again, I thought it was going to be a critic screening, but my man Walter was the same guy who hooked up the Equ- Equalizer 3 screening, which wasn't as good because everyone had to take Uber to go see because I didn't have a car at the time, so I was more annoyed. And the theater wasn't as plush. This is like, it wasn't an IMAX theater, but it felt like it. And I walked in, even he was like does it feel to have a theater to yourself? Like, <laughs> dreams come true. This is a 500 seat theater. I'm going to watch a gigantic Bob Marley biopic all by myself. Only Tyrone the Usher came out at one point, I had my feet up on one of the chairs. I'm like, maybe he's going to admonish me. I'm like, no, he's not. They just gave me the entire theater. I, I think I could take my shoes off. I'm going yeah. start smoking in this place. He wouldn't care, but like, go ahead. It's your theater. Whatever you want to do, buddy.
1: How's that work? Could you just walk in there with 10 friends? No. When I
0: walked up, I was about to like, look, and he just goes, Add in. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, hey, Walter. Because I did ask, I said, can I bring my wife as well? Uh, just because you know, I was just—it's yeah. a Friday morning. The kids were at school, yeah. and then they go. Actually, no. And then I asked her because well, I wouldn't want to go anyways. Like was like, "Oh, you're right. You're yeah. anti Bob Marley. She said, well, I don't, I'm not going to spend two hours in that theater anyway. So she was right. So ten friends. No, I couldn't even bring my wife. Quite frankly, wow. But by myself, could have done it. But for, movie, free popcorn? No, and, that, and I said that to Walter. I go, my buddy Cody last time asked me, "The college, did they give you anything?" He's like, "No." I said, "You know, maybe it's a little early for Juke Jubes and such, but no popcorn. Yeah. I had a water myself." But to your point, I think he did say, "Do you want a water?" And I was like, well, just to sell the story a little more, I got you know cool water, but no, I was like, I have my own water, thank you.
1: But you're man, right that would have that would have really sold the story, man. But, getting but, that. Free but you're water. right if he had, if he had offered, he goes, do you have a, do you have water and a popcorn? I'm like, if you have milk
0: duds, I'm not going to say no. I don't care if it's 10 <laughs> a.m. I'm not going to say no to milk duds. <laughs> so that's the step for next time. Voice memo, Giamatti next time. And next time I'm gonna get food with the. The screening was great, but it, the movie was excellent. I've already interviewed Kingsley Benadir. The, the junket was on Sunday. I was really worried I was gonna forget. I'm like, oh, football and stuff's going on. I'm not gonna remember this. But I interviewed him. He was awesome. So eleven great minutes. That's gonna be coming up next week and the week after that. I have this great book I'm holding in my hand: Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions: My Forty Something Years in Hollywood by Ed Zwick. He's the director of Glory, Legends, of The Fall, Last Samurai. Big time, courage under fire. Great director, man. He's, he's awesome. So I cannot wait to talk to him. I finished the book, 300 pages. It's fantastic. So coming up, Kingsley Benadir from the Bob Marley biopic One Love. Next week and the week after that, acclaimed director Ed Zwick. We are, we're bringing the heat here on cinephile. All right, let's do our actual movies. Wonka, which I finally got around to seeing. I was waiting for the Oscars, quite honestly, and it got zero Oscar nominations. So I said, do I still need to see this movie? And my thought was, yeah, I do. Because- you want to have movies that are successful. Skipper's made that point to me before. You got to have movies that people are watching. I'm like, I got that. This movie's at $195 million domestic and $550 million worldwide gross. This is one of the biggest hits of last year. And it's has a guy who loves chocolate. With dreams of opening a shop in a city renowned for its chocolate, a young and poor Willy Wonka discovers that the industry is run by a cartel of greedy chocolatiers. My buddy, Tyler Korn, who was the one who... Uh, of the film All the Strangers in the World, or that's called. It's the Gay Sixth Sense. He texted me after watching Wonka 10 Minutes In, and he goes, Are you aware that this is a musical? And I actually wasn't. I go, Are you kidding? He's like, Yeah. He goes, I, I just walked in the theater, and Timothée Chalamet's singing. I'm like, Oh my God. And I so this is the main reason that I was very skittish on watching the film. Years ago, Tim Kirchner said to me, You know, there has to be some movies you haven't seen that are famous. as Yeah, of course. I said, Give me some. I go, uh, Sound of Music. He's never seen Sound of Music. I'm like, Nope. Something else he said, and he was like, okay, I started to see a theme here. It's a lot of musicals. I'm like, "Yeah, there's like, there's like MGM 1950s musicals that I just haven't got around to seeing. I'm like, I'm aware of Gene Kelly, aware of Fred Astaire, I know all these, but I just, you know, I haven't had the, the, the urge to sit down and watch the Von Trapp family. So generally when it comes to musicals, I like the Broadway shows. I loved Hamilton. I loved uh, the Temptations musical on, on Broadway last year. It was awesome. Jersey Boys, probably one of the best musicals I've ever seen. So I like the musicals in a Broadway sense. If you tell me there's a great musical, I'm like, I'll go. But as a movie, I always find it a little tougher. Like Hamilton, the musical I never watched. Remember when it came out on Disney Plus? I was like, eh, like, I love the live theater experience. I'm not going to be able to replicate this. In The Heights, though, the movie was very good. Lin- Lin-Manuel Miranda, I enjoyed that musical. All of which is to say... I'm not crazy about musicals in general, which is why it's even more surprising that I enjoyed Wonka. Because what I liked about the film was the music. I thought that was the strength of the film. The stuff that I didn't like was all the other stuff around it. You know, I think when you're trying to make a musical, the most important thing is the songs. Without question. If the the songs don't sing, you got a problem. You're going to have people walking out of that two-hour musical comedy saying, oh, I love that song, I can't wait to buy the CD, et cetera, et cetera, download the music, et cetera. But I actually thought the other stuff wasn't as good. So, you know, I I kind of understand Richard Roper's review in Wonka where he said that Timothee Chalamet underwhelms in a scattershot origin story that mixes too many ingredients into its chocolate-covered plot. So I, I, I kind of understand where he's going with, but at the same time, the music to me is such a joy. And I did love the production design and you know the overall fashion sense of it. I'm a little surprised it wasn't nominated for at least one or two Oscars. Costume design, perhaps, makeup I thought was really good. So above all, I, I would recommend it with a lukewarm two and a half maple leaf review, and say again, the music I thought was a strength of it, but I didn't think the other elements of this origin Wonka story were necessarily strong. I know people hate that the Johnny Depp Wonka movie, and it's nowhere near as good as the Gene Wilder original Charlie and Chocolate Factory, but it definitely has its moments. Peter Rainier. The critic says, King is above all a pleasure giver. He wants to heighten the knockabout joys of unfettered high spirits.
1: How did Hugh Grant do as the Oompa Loompa? Oh, I'm
0: glad you mentioned. Hugh Hugh Grant was great. So I I kept waiting because I'd seen him promoting on one of these talk shows that I watch, and then he doesn't show up for at least over an hour into the movie, and he's playing an Oompa Loompa. And one of the best parts of it is that when the music starts playing, he can't stop moving. So it's like, he's like, once the song starts going, he's like, Oompa Loompa, and he starts doing the whole song, and I was like, all right. I actually thought Hugh Grant was very funny, and he's diminutive in the movie i mean he's literally lilliputian, and he's not that short in real life but of course the magic of cgi think can make these things work so uh for a moment, it's a really good song uh, the whole soundtrack actually is excellent and chalamet can really sing i gotta tell you i mean he he has a spot in my heart because he's buddied up with my boy marty uh, marty directed him i think in a chanel commercial if i'm not mistaken someone can double check me on that but if, if you google martin scorsese timothy chalamet they did a commercial together and then Chalamet interviewed Marty, I believe, in Vanity Fair. They did like a 20-minute video. And at one point, Marty kind of laughed. He's like, oh, you're a good-looking guy. Come on. Like he's, he starts directing the, the crew. He's like, no, put the light here. Come on. This guy's like this. do like this. So he's actually worked with Chalamet, which is odd to think about, but him and Marty are become buddies a little bit. And Chalamet is definitely an interesting actor. And by the way, beautiful singing voice. I mean, I'd love to see him actually on Broadway. Like I I was genuinely surprised. He's got a really kind of smooth, velvety voice about him. This is a guy known for like Call Me By Your Name and Dune. Dune Part 2. Can't wait to go see an IMAX. Bones and all, which I loved. That was one of my favorite films of last year. He's a, a wonderful singer and plays a very eccentric Willy Wonka. It was Chanel. Yeah, Chanel and him and Marty together. So, my man's got talent. There's no doubt about that. He's definitely uh, been enjoying a moment. Yeah, GQ. If you want to look it up, there's a like a 30 minute interview of Timothy Chalamet interviewing Martin Scorsese. All right, we'll get to Nicole Newman in just a second, but let's talk a little bit of sideways. I don't want to say too much because Cody's watching it right now. You. you no. Please
1: say, all, say all you want. Like, right. I, I am watching and I'm in the middle of it. I'm enjoying it. Uh, you know, so far in the movie, Paul Giamatti, not the most likable character. That's all I'll say so far.
0: OK, so it's uh, yeah. For those who say, what's the big deal about sideways? Our buddy Amin El-Hassan recently, I was talking about the best films of the last of this century. And I had sideways in my top five. And Amin El-Hassan said it was overrated. To which I say, Amin El-Hassan, you're overrated. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I mean, it's a great guy. But, but I hear people say they say, what's the big deal about sideways? My wife, by the way, hates it. She's like, I don't understand how much you love that movie. Like, I, I don't get it. I was like, all right, well, I'll try to explain it to you. Two men reaching middle age with not much to show but disappointment embark on a week-long road trip through California's wine country just as one is about to take a trip down the aisle. It's from the uber-talented, Alexander Payne, who was at the Critics' Choice Association, who was one of the few people I did not bombard and ask for a selfie. He co-wrote the script, and he directed it as well. And he's truly a cinephile. I mean, he, you get him talking about movies, he will joke that he's pedantic, but his knowledge of film is incredible. And with Sideways, he really knocked it out of the park. And as my guy Giamatti has said, you know, wherever he goes now, in all these interviews he's done, people have asked him, you know, what do you most get quoted? He goes, well, it's the Merlot line, which I believe Chris has now seen yeah yeah you've seen that break he goes yeah so go wherever yeah. i go because people always do the merlot line right i'm not drinking any of merlot he said but ironically i'm not much of a wine drinker so he said me and my ex-wife would be out for dinner and every time if somebody recognized me the waiter would come i'm like oh we're not giving you any merlot and she might like, i'm actually not much of a wine guy but yeah. <laughs> uh, you know i'll just have a bud light and we're good like so but that line has followed him and what's amazing is that line really did impact merlot I don't have the exact numbers on me, but if you can do a quick Google search again, do a little work in your own time, choose your own adventure, you'll see that the sales of Merlot were clearly impacted by Sideways, which I'm not sure why I found funny, but I just think it's funny that a movie could have that kind of an impact. Sideways was much bigger financial success than I realized. I always put it with those mid-tier adult comedies that make like 40 to 50 million, but this film made over $100 million. Like it, it was real success and it wasn't just critics, audiences loved it as well. And I remember people who didn't like it would joke that you know the reason that critics loved it so much is because they all see themselves in the movie. They all see themselves as Paul Giamatti. There's these, these failed guys uh, who are middle-aged and angry and embittered and couldn't get their book to sell and all the rest of it. But I think it's an unqualified success. I mean, it's 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And to me, it holds up for many reasons. One of which, it's a great examination of the male psyche. And it, it really follows that formula, but is not formulaic, of the buddy comedy. You've seen this around since... 48 Hours, Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy, and and for long beyond that, Laurel and Hardy, perhaps. But this whole concept of the buddy comedy and the road comedy. So you're taking these two really well-established tropes, but to me, doing so in in a fashion that's rarely ever been better executed. I mentioned the fact it was successful financially, 109.7 million dollars. It was a juggernaut, and for awards, I mean, th- this won the Academy Award for the screenplay, and that's I think where I start. The script to me is absolutely brilliant. You know, it was nominated for Best Picture. Thomas Hayden Church is up for Best Supporting Actor, uh, Virginia Madsen up for Best Supporting Actress, uh, Best Directing. Payne was nominated. He wins for writing, and of course, the big controversy was that Giamatti was not nominated. For all the people I've been saying this year, hey, Paul Giamatti finally got nominated for the holdovers. His first nomination for Best Actor. They go, Wait, he didn't get nominated for Side like, No, he didn't. And that was the big controversy.
1: Merlot sales, the movie came out in October of 2004. The, fr- the sales from January 2005 through 2008, Merlot sales were down two- 2%. No, see, that's not as much as I thought. Bottom line, even if you're doing 2%, I'm sure that guy wasn't pleased.
0: Some yeah. movie, but some prick, you know, some, some wine snob all of a sudden hurting my yeah. movie. The conversation always becomes... You know, when a guy gets stubble, who else was nominated? Right. It's it's easy to say, I can't believe Paul Giamatti didn't get nominated for sideways. Like, what the hell are these guys doing? But then of course you have to look at what else was nominated that year. And that was the year very famously Jamie Foxx won for Ray. And he's, I mean, fantastic in the movie. So as I quickly do a Google search right now and check out the
1: other nominees. Like you said, you had Jamie Foxx for Ray, you had Clint Eastwood for Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, Johnny Depp for Finding Neverland, Leonardo DiCaprio for The Aviator, and Don Cheadle, which I never knew he had a Best Actor nominee. Don Cheadle for Hotel Rw- Rwanda.
0: Well, this is an easy one. Fox is amazing. Deservedly won the Academy Award. Leo and the Aviator is awesome. Million Dollar Baby was the best picture of that year. Deservedly so. And for me, also one of the best films of this century. And Clint's acting was amazing. Seeing him emoting and that genuine emotion was amazing. That scene with the priest, he starts to cry. Cheadle, as you mentioned, has been a great actor for a long time. Not many people even realize he's been Academy Award nominated. Normally gets supporting roles. This was a rare chance to get his best actor lead and he was awesome in Hotel Rwanda. But very simply, how the hell is Johnny Depp getting nominated for Finding Neverland and Paul Giamatti? So easy answer. The next time someone says, how the hell? Well, you know, who else? Uh, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp for Finding Neverland. We could take that one out and we can get Giamatti in for Sideways. Back to more of the film. It's really funny. And there, there's some great side-splitting moments in it. There's some you know, great verbal wordplay. When Thomas Hayden Church tells him you need to get your joint work done. There's also yep. some great slapstick when the scene where Gimani grabs him after finding out that his ex-wife's going to get married and literally runs down the hill. And he has said that scene was treacherous because you don't understand that, that hill is a lot steeper than what you see in the movie. So it's a great
1: shot of like just the camera being still and you see them enter the scene and then yeah. exit the scene. It's great.
0: To me, Giamatti's character, I don't know if Chris is out at the scene now, but I'm going to go ahead and spoil it, perhaps. Go right. ahead. Go but the, ahead. the, the one scene that people seem to love, which I'm not crazy about, is the scene with him and Virginia Madsen. And this is where they start to begin their courtship. You, you're not there yet, because you're just yeah, to, yeah. He's making the phone but calls. I to can extra. tell it's coming.
1: I can but tell it's coming. it's coming.
0: So when they start to link up a little bit, he starts talking about wine, and she realizes he's talking about himself. You know, this wine that he loves is very prickly on the outside. It's got this exterior, but inside it's tender, it's sweet, blah, blah, blah. And then she starts talking about the wine as well. That to me is one of the few scenes I actually don't like about the movie. <laughs> Scott Feinberg was interviewing Giamatti and he's brought that scene. He goes, Oh, that scene's incredible, blah, blah, blah. he like, Oh, yeah, people seem to like it. And I was like, If I interviewed him, which never going to happen, I'd be like, Hey, that movie's perfect. That's the one thing I don't care for. That's the only scene to me where like it's a little bit too obvious that you're like, Oh, because you're kind of a prick. You're saying that this wine, which isn't well regarded, is like that as well. Like, Oh, I got it. A little too on the nose, as they say in the business. But aside from that, what I like about the dialogue is that. These characters are inherently unlikable and yet always watchable. As Christian said about Giamatti, he's like, he's not the nicest guy in the world. First off, he shows up late to go pick up his money, which is hilarious. I'll be right there. You see him brush his teeth, hanging out, driving in San Taking Diego. Taking a shit, reading he, a book he, on the he, toilet. He just doesn't care. He <laughs> then goes, I got to make a quick stop at my wife. And Gimani is said, he goes, I do love that Alexander my mom. included this detail. Yeah. He goes to see his mom and then rips off his mom. He goes into the room and sees where she keeps her extra money sees an old picture of his dad, which I believe maybe Bart Giamatti, if I'm not mistaken. i got going to go watch it again, but I think it might be a picture of his actual dad. Rips off his mom's money, then goes, continues on the road trip. And again, he's just a wine snob. He he just wants to drink wine, great wine. He likes art, literature, et cetera. And he would love to get his book published. And obviously, he still misses his ex-wife. Then you got Thomas Hayden Church, who's absolutely hysterical. He's on the other end of the spectrum. He's got one goal, which is to bang as many chicks as he can before he gets married to his very beautiful Armenian wife. And Hayden Church is nothing short of a revelation in this movie. I didn't know him at all. I know he's the guy from Wings, but I watched this movie and I go, This guy's hysterical. And he very well deserved supporting actor Oscar. Again, Giamatti has said in interviews, he goes, Tom was as funny in the movie as he is on set. Like he goes, we were always cracking up because he was he was writing character and he was really funny. And he just got the fact this guy's a horn dog. Period. Like he's just like, I'm gonna get after him before I get married. And I've heard critics much smarter than me say that one of the, the charms of Sideways is that. If you look at any man, this is probably way too simplistic, but you're either you're either one or the other. Like in terms of these characters, you got a little miles in you, or, or whatever you might be. Like, I think that's probably, again, too simplistic, but there's elements to it that I, I definitely yes. think while watching the no, film, it's, it's you great. can say, you yeah, know right, I, I'm kind of like this guy, or I definitely have a buddy who's kind of like him. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When my yeah. buddy was getting married, he's kind of getting after it like this. I'm like, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah, yeah. Like we've definitely there's definitely elements to it. And um, again, for a film that like I'm not a wine drinker, but I'm like I, I watch this when oh, I I find wine fascinating now. Going to California, Napa Vibe, making the wine. It's a fascinating process.
1: I'm only halfway through it, but big swingers vibes. Yes. Like two buddies, yes. one's down in the dumps, one's the fun guy. Yeah. Let's let me let, let's go on this here, buddy. Let's like we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna change like it's and I love swingers. So like yeah. that's like I'm only halfway through, so I'm I'm loving it.
0: I love it. That's a great call by you because I also love swingers. That's one of my favorite comedies of the nineties. I mean, that's a top ten comedy of all time. And you're right. Mikey's the big Who's the big winner? Mikey's the big winner. So yeah, similarly, yeah. he's trying to pick him up, but it's gorgeously shot. It, again, as a non-wine drinker. I want to watch this movie and go get some Pinot because I want to get after it. I want to go to California, Napa Valley, and it uh, makes you really appreciate what wine is all about. It really makes you appreciate these characters, and um, I don't want to say too much more because so I want Chris to enjoy it, and I want other people to enjoy it. Maybe others of you haven't seen it. My buddy Mitch, he knows I'm on this Giamatti kick, so he just watched it himself. He watched it, like, last night was texting me. He's like, dude, that's a great movie. I'm like, thank God I didn't spoil it for you. Um, I will say the ending, particularly the scene where Mahdi talks to his ex-wife, that's as good as acting gets, man. Like that, That's why he's my guy, because he can play the schlub, like all of us, who knows what it's like to have a knife through your throat. That, that, that scene he has with his ex-wife at the wedding, you, I could watch it any day of the week and not feel, like, great emotion for him. The way he tries to fight back the emotion and he smiles through his teeth, like that gritted smile literally the night the steak is in your heart and you're trying to smile and wish someone good luck. It's, it's incredible. And then the next shot, of course, where it cuts him in the, in the fast food restaurant, which is now even funnier because after he won the golden globe, he was spotted at internet. Everyone said, Oh my God, that's like a sideways moment because because they ending of sideways. I also at the ending. They really stick the landing. One thing about Alexander Payne he knows how to end his movies and he knows how to really maximize the emotion, but do so in a really smart way. Like I don't think his films are overly sentimental, I think they're, they're tough at times because they can be pessimistic, but there's a real humanist element to it. And I think Sideways is not only Paul Giamatti's masterpiece, I think it's Alexander Payne's as well. I don't know if those guys will ever make a better movie, with the exception being perhaps The Holdovers, which maybe is going to win. I know people love the gambling. I was on a Calgary radio station today, and they said, give me, a, give me an Oscar pick that could have some good value. So I said, well, Ben Lyons is the first guy that said Giamatti's going to win the best actor, but I don't think he's the favorite. They go, well, on this one, betting say he's plus 190. And I go, make the bet now because because the SAG awards are coming February 24th. And if Giamatti wins there, that plus 190 is going to come minus 190. He's going to become the favorite. So head out to DraftKings. Make your bets right now. Put some money in the line. Doing that yeah, right Chris now. is doing it right now. Giamatti, best actor. I'm telling you, if he wins the SAG, it's going to turn things around. But uh, as my friend Mitch, who watched it said, "Your boy is the master of awkward individuals." Good flick. This closes my Giamatti vortex. Red wine in a styrofoam cup. Let's all taste the greatness. Up sideways. I look forward to more of Chris's thoughts after he's finished the movie next week. For now, though, let's get to our special guest. The Disappearance of Cher Height is an outstanding documentary. It's currently at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, according to Critics. So I can think of no greater uh, validation than that. And the film is currently on VOD, so you can get it on iTunes, Amazon, and it's also available in some theaters right now. But, of course, streaming services, it's readily available. It's a pleasure to bring in the director, Nicole Newnham right now, who did a fantastic job with this doc. Nicole, good to see you. How are things?
2: Good to see you, too. Things are Things are good.
0: So this is uh, a subject matter which is ripe for discussion because I didn't know anything about it. And uh, my friend Eric Nays, who's a wonderful researcher at MLB Network, who I work with a good friend. He says, listen, there's this great doc uh, you know, my friend Eleanor co-produced. I said, OK, um, what's it about? Well, you just check it out yourself. OK, so I. I Google, I see the 100% that gets my attention. And then I say, wow, I didn't know about this. Cher Height's 1976 seventy-six, best-selling book, The Height Report, liberated the female orgasm by revealing the most private experiences of thousands of anonymous survey respondents. Her findings rock the American establishment and pre-stage current conversations about gender, sexuality, and bodily autonomy. Very early on, there's an interview of Cher Height from 1976, mm-hmm. in which she says, masturbation is a cause for celebration. Women can do so with ease and regularity. But take me back to seventy six. What a big deal that was that women were masturbating.
2: It was a big deal to talk about that at all. Um, it was also a really big deal to think that that to to talk about the experience of women that that was the primary way that women achieved orgasm. And um, and you know Masters and Johnson at the time had said clitoral stimulation was the was the key way that women um, achieved orgasm. But they said that you could kind of indirectly. Ach- get that through intercourse. And Height was I sent out these anonymous surveys to 3,000, over 3,000 American women with over a hundred questions, all these intimate details about their sex lives. And also not just what do you do, but how do you feel about it? What do you want? All these things that really got at kind of the human experience of female sexuality, really kind of in a, in a very groundbreaking way, sort of for the first time. And the answer coming back like we know how to have orgasm. We can do it ourselves, but we're not having it, um, having orgasms with our partners because right. they're persisting and believing that we're going to have them through vaginal penetration really was a bombshell in the culture.
0: Yeah. And I, I loved her line. Where they're talking about, you know, men masturbating, women masturbating, getting off, et cetera. And she says, equality doesn't seem dangerous to me. Like it was such a plain way of saying it. Like, what's a big deal? Like, if if a man can achieve stimulation, why can't a woman? Like, I thought that was such a great line that you used in the documentary that Cherheid said.
2: I know. I mean, I, I really love that period around 1971 because I think it was a period in American society where there were so many kind of civil rights movements growing, the feminist movement, the. the uh, movement for racial equality that had started to really achieve major gains, and I think it made people dream and think that we could have a more equitable society. And mm-hmm. that's the movement that Cher was coming out of, and she was full of optimism and belief that you know if we if if she put forth this information, not only women would want to change their their lives, but men would want to change too, and that that uh, we, we would achieve more happiness and things would be better and. Um, and that's sort of the um, the structure of the documentary. Is you find out that that's in fact not what not what m- most men wanted.
0: Yeah, I, I, among the many double standards is that you know male reproductive organs can be mentioned, penis, testicles, but if women you mentioned vagina, vulva, especially the clitoris. All of a sudden, people are taken aback. Like, oh, we can't we can't have these words discussed out in public and. To your point, I thought the doc really was fascinating when exactly you're referring to once she started to focus on men. So she starts to pull men 13 to 97 about their habits. And that information is equally revelatory in that a lot of men feel like they can't share their feelings. There's no way that they can be open and honest about being a man. What does it mean to be a man? There's one great uh, subject who says, you know, I cried one time when I was a kid. I didn't cry again for 25 years. Like the, the, the study that came out of what she thought was a lot of repressed male emotion.
2: Right, and and not only is that what she was presenting to people, but you see that when it was presented, people couldn't handle the fact that it that it was true. You know, people didn't want to acknowledge that that was true. Um, there's another subject, this wonderful uh, man, Martin Sage, and and editor and, and writer who was one of Cher Heights' boyfriends. You know, who said. We, w- w- our pride and our belief in our own happiness rested on the fact that we we had women in our beds. We were making them happy, and all of a sudden, Cher Height comes along and says, "You know what? You're not happy," and mm. and you just see people saying, "Like, well, that's not true of me, and that's not true of anybody that I know," and it's it's painful to see, and I think. One of the reasons it's so painful to see in the documentary is because we recognize that that's an area where we haven't really made an enormous amount of progress, you know? I mean, you, you sit there and you see how these things were groundbreaking at the time, Cher height saying the word clitoris on television, you know, um, talking about men's emotions around their own sexuality. And then you think about the fact that, you know, they were having more substantive conversations about that you know, back in the seventies and eighties, than we seem to be having in the media around those things today, you know?
0: Yeah. There's a great clip of Stephen Colbert. I think it's like 07, 08, where Cher Height says to him, I thought we were going to be, you were going to be the first one to say clitoris on television. So well, I can't go in that direction. And like, you know, <laughs> I, again, I, I know he's playing a character at that time. He was doing the Colbert report, but still it's like, as you said, there was such a, a guarded sense around it. Um, yeah. I think the the personal details are fascinating with Cher Height as well, like who she was as a person and, uh, one of her husbands, the one who was, he was married at the time, and then they, they had a conversation. And there's a great story, the way he tells the way she went, the phone booth, like it was just like electricity <laughs> between them. He's like, okay, th- like something's going on here. So I, I, how did you find digging into her personal life and how that was interwoven within her work?
2: Well, you know, it was she had written an autobiography and and that was very helpful but it was really when we got into the um Schlesinger library at the at Radcliffe at Harvard that um that we started uncovering these sort of like Oh, naked contemporaneous writings that she that she was doing throughout her whole life, almost like a journal where she would sort of type, start typing up something that might be an autobiography or a chapter of something or whatever, and then leave it and then come back to it. and Almost kind of flamey-like writings about what she was really thinking and feeling. And that's when her character really started to come to life. And, you know, one of the things that grabbed my attention about her immediately was that she had sort of self-created her own image as though she was sort of a 1930s movie star. So, she's incredibly mm-hmm. alluring. She's insanely beautiful and attractive and she holds herself um, that way and dressed, you know, in this completely iconoclastic, glamorous, you know, sort of maximalist, feminine way. And then she dared people to take her seriously when she was talking to them about, about, uh, talking especially to men, you know, about sexuality. And I think, um, you know she was really poking the bear and she was um she was saying i refuse to be held back by a double standard and i'm going to be completely uncompromising about it and pre- present myself exactly how i want and you know of course you know in the reaction to that you see so many complex and interesting things about our own society but i also i also was very intrigued by you know her her personal story. Somebody who really kind of lived the American dream on a certain level. You know, coming from nothing, having been abandoned as a child, finding her way to New York City, finding a whole band of kind of compatriots and hmm. the artistic and social justice movements that were happening at the time, and and creating herself as this person who wrote the 30th best-selling book of all time. You know, it it, it seemed like an extraordinary story with a with a huge star at the center of it.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. About thirtieth best-selling book. I'm glad you put that in at the end crawl there. It's amazing to think about. uh To your point about her being like a thirty star. I love the clip you have. Of, I think she's on the Mike Douglas show, and she pulls out a smoke, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, it's a bad app he's like, "I couldn't care less." And I think it's her husband saying. He's like, "No, she thought she was like Betty Davis or something. Like she's gonna talk nasty and be that. <laughs> that's and this her who she boyfriend, and,
2: Martin Sage. Yeah, yeah right. Martin's <laughs> yeah. talking
0: about that. It was a great yeah. clip that you used from that show. Even you know, seeing her on Oprah as well. Like I just. Again, the way she would just get ganged up upon, like I I just had a real sense of sympathy for her. Like she's trying to do something clearly good. Like she's trying to be a voice for women. But again, I I don't know why so many men view it as like anti men. She's being a voice for women, but also for men. Like she's trying to showcase their stuff as well. But as you point out, that defensiveness, particularly when she was on Oprah, the way that's just like pitchforks and torches. And it's like, I, I really had a sense of sympathy for what she must have gone through.
2: Oh, totally. And I think, you know, in, in my opinion, the most revealing thing that's said in that, in that Oprah show is the man who says, you know, he's very visibly furious. And he says, yeah. my problem is with women's lib and you know i don't want you to hear you complaining about it you started the program you know you go ahead take take a big percentage of the workforce away take take percentages of our salaries away but don't you be complaining you know and you and you really see i think in that moment how much of the reaction is a response to people's fear of what would be taken away from them if we were to actually um, move towards equality and i think share Sher- yeah. height never stopped believing that if we were actually to move towards equality, men would be happier as well as women,
0: you know? Correct. It's a win for all sides. It's not, someone's being not being taken away. Everybody wins when uh, everyone gets satisfied of what they're all all seeking. Yeah. I kept thinking while watching Nicole, it'd be a great double bill with the movie Kinsey, which I love, the Liam Neeson movie, Bill Condon, of course, directed that. Um, is there any similarities with Cher, Height, and Kinsey? Of course, for those who don't know, Kinsey was a sex researcher as well, also controversial at the time, also wrote best selling books. Is there any, um, did Cher, Height, was she a fan of Kinsey? Did she talk about his work at all?
2: Yeah, I think she was really grateful to both Kinsey and Masters and Johnson, you know. And I think, yeah. I think she she was looking for kind of the gaps. She was looking at the questions that kind of in her mind still remained unanswered, and trying to come up with like a an innovative, um, you know, kind of new way of uh, of of creating a methodology that would would get at some different truths. And people had various opinions about um, the validity or kind of hardcore science of the methodology she devised. But she mm-hmm. she really felt like if you didn't ask people questions anonymously, you weren't going to get truthful responses. And she was willing to sacrifice some of what people said scientifically you needed to, um, to do to get a, a, a real random sample in mm-hmm. favor of trying to get at, at something different. And when people would attack her, she would say, well, you know, Freud developed a new new methodology and his sample size was only three Viennese women and people listened to him. And she just genuinely couldn't couldn't understand why if she was getting at something truthful, people wouldn't embrace it, you know, but she did find herself in the crosshairs of that argument as well.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you include, there's a few talking heads saying, listen, you know, she's bright and everything, but it's not scientific, which gets to the issue of, well, what exactly is scientific? And, and of course, shares bounce back against that. I know Kinsey got in some trouble at some point with his research because, you know, he was pointing out that, you know, Not everybody's heterosexual. Some people are bisexual. Some people Mm -hmm. have tendencies. And Mm -hmm. then then all of a sudden it became a criticism of monogamy. Cher herself, one of her friends, says that she was openly bisexual at the time. Mm -hmm. How challenging was that at that time, even in New York City in the 1970s?
2: I mean, I think it was very challenging. I think Cher found her way into a milieu in which it was being explored and celebrated. And and there was a, a huge amount of kind of heady activism around it. You know, she was friends with Activists like Carla J and Kate Millett and people who were, who were you know really thinking that you know they were going to be able to make major progress around acceptance of those issues and uh, Carla J said something to me that really um, stuck with me, which was you know the reason that people had such a problem with share height is she was offering them a choice you know and the responses that came back people were saying sometimes i like having sex with women but i get this from men and there was a there's much more of a personal sense of the fluidity of um, people's experience of gender and sexuality that kind of defies categorization when you're just hearing the very private kind of secret feelings of human beings. Mm. And um, and and Carla said, you know what, that tells people. And that's certainly what it told me when I read it, when I was 12 years old, is you have a choice. You can experience, you know, sexuality and, and your your own experience of your gender identity and everything kind of in in the way that, you know, personally works best for you. And that's OK. And yeah. um, and that that was, you know, really terrifying to, to people in society.
0: Again, it's a terrific documentary. Sure that was go true ahead. in
2: Kinsey's time as well, you know.
0: Yeah, I was about to say. I think those issues have remained no matter what the generation is. Again, yeah. the disappearance of share height. I encourage everyone to go see it. Last question for me, Nicole. What's it like to make a documentary, which we all know no one's doing for the money? It's all uh, toil and sweat and tears, and you get a hundred percent right now reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I know it's only an aggregate; it's just one measure. But how gratifying is that?
2: <laughs> it's pretty thrilling. I mean, this this project was really a labor of love of a lot of people, women as well as men, and uh, and we all really wanted to bring back Cher Heights' message and the conversations that that she had started then, which are still so important and relevant to today. And uh, and we wanted to do it in an exciting cinematic way. So to get that kind of reflection back is really thrilling
0: yeah and i I think it's really important like you said it's it's not a battle of the sexes it's men and women doing it together one of the things that i think was interesting i can't remember what award show was maybe the craig's choice awards or uh I'm mean, think we're America Ferrera one. And she was saying, you know, I want to thank, of course, Greta Gerwig and Margaret Robbie, but also Ryan Gosling and all the men involved as well. Like, it, yeah. it takes a real man to support women's issues as well. Like, that's a cool thing to do as well. So I okay. encourage men and women to go watch The Disappearance of Share Height. It's on video on demand, streaming services, iTunes, Amazon, and in select theaters as well. Nicole, great to see you. Thank you so much and best of luck with other projects.
2: Thank you. It was great to talk to you.
0: All right, thank you once again to Nicole, and make sure you check out that wonderful documentary The Disappearance of Cher Height. Thanks, as always, to Chris Cody and the entire crew. Again, more details about potentially uh, the Academy Awards or some Oscar content. That's probably the better way I should say it. On behalf of Metal Arc Media, Cinephile will be involved, uh, perhaps regrettably, with David Sampson, but we continue. Um, <laughs> hope everyone enjoys the Super Bowl coming up. Lots of great movies coming down the pike. Again, next week, the star of One Love, the new... Bob Marley biopic Kingsley, Ben Adir will be our special guest the week after that. Director Ed Zwick, do your homework right now. If you don't know Ed Zwick, go watch Glory, go watch The Last Samurai, go watch Legends of the Fall, go watch Courage Under Fire, 30-something, a TV show by so-called life, Claire Danes. This guy has been a real player the last 40 years, and he's written a great book, which is available February 13th. So do some prep for the interview, and I hope it goes as well as the book was a read for me. Thanks, as always, for supporting Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies.